Thank you for joining us for this episode of From All Sides, a podcast by Cube Group, where we explore the strategic, organizational, and human sides of the major issues facing public value organizations in the current world, and particularly the current COVID-19 crisis. Our series focuses on the different ways the COVID-19 pandemic impacts public service leaders and their organizations. And we discuss the ways we can be better prepared to lead Australia through response and recovery. Cube Group acknowledges the traditional owners on the land in which we work. Cube's offices is on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of the land on which we work and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and to Aboriginal Elders and community members who may be listening today. For more information on each episode of the podcast, please visit our website, cubegroup.com.au. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello. Today is the 14th of July, 2021. As we speak, the focus of Australia's COVID elimination strategy has shifted to New South Wales. Sydney is entering the third week of its lockdowns in response to an outbreak that has now resulted in more than 700 cases. And sadly, also this week, Australia had our first COVID-related deaths of 2021, with two people sadly passing away in the past week. Understandably, there's a great deal of focus on Australia's vaccination rollout. Just 9% of Australia's population are now fully vaccinated, which is well below the rates of other OECD countries. Around the world, particularly countries like the UK, COVID-19 restrictions are being lifted despite the ongoing presence of the virus, as the evidence shows a dramatic reduction in the severity of illness amongst vaccinated people. High rates of vaccination amongst the population are allowing people to move back to a degree of normality despite the ongoing presence of the virus. What is clear in Australia is that the vaccine rollout is no longer just a problem of supply, but also one of access and logistics. There is some evidence of hesitancy amongst the community for the vaccine, as well as significant confusion around the availability and safety of some vaccines. The past week, for example, saw significant debate around the appropriateness of the AstraZeneca vaccine for people under the age of 40. It should be said that that debate is occurring despite overwhelming evidence that the vaccines are extremely safe and very effective. These issues are highlighting just how important perceptions are to public value endeavours, particularly in the public health space. Throughout the pandemic, we've seen how important it is to engage the public in public health challenges as they rely on the actions of all of us. We saw this challenge in relation to the social distancing measures that were needed to contain the spread of the virus, and now we're seeing them again in relation to the vaccine rollout to protect us from it. Good communication, and dare I say good branding, is critical to the success of public health initiatives, and there are lessons that we can take from this for so many different public value endeavours. To help us think about the role of brand in public value organisations, our guest today is Joe Rogers. Joe is the co-founder of The Contenders, a strategic brand agency that works at the intersection of market research and strategy. The Contenders work with public, private and not-for-profit organisations to help them define and develop their brand, who they are, what their vision and values are for a better world. And especially relevant to this conversation, Joe has a focus on brands that are authentic, that truly shape the decisions that organisations have to make during this time of unending choices. Joe, thanks so much for being a part of this conversation. Pleasure time. I wonder if we could start by talking openly a bit about brand in public value organisations. Seems to me there's a still a degree of discomfort, I suppose, in the public value context in talking about branding. What does branding mean for a public value organisation and why do public value organisations need to take branding seriously? 
you know, I think the reason why branding is often seen perhaps in not the light that it should be is actually not one of kind of necessarily miscomprehension of actually what branding can do. I think it's really probably the association that actually goes with it. So I think quite often branding is seen as a communication tool where really it's a value creation tool. And it's really about kind of how you define a space, not necessarily kind of communicate a point of view. So I think in a public value organization, where it gets interesting is that brand is actually the thing you should really be focused on because it's, it's not just communication. Really what brand is, is a perspective on how the world should be. And if you're working in public value, you're always working towards trying to build a better world. You're working in that way and in that area because you have a belief system. And brand, when it's done well, is really about capturing that belief system. It's really about being able to define it in a way that you can then start to talk about it and most importantly, make it distinctive to you. So I think a lot of public value organizations understand the concept of brand and the power that it can hold. I think it's tied up a bit in that it's the communication of it is seen as manipulating a situation. Whereas really, you know, coming back to what I said before, it's a really, really powerful tool to define who you are in this world and the difference that you want to make. Tell me a bit about what, how that different conception of branding, what does that mean practically about being more than just communication? Yeah, well, communication is an aspect. I mean, you know, of course, you have to go out and you have to be able to tell people what you stand for. But brand is really the process of leading up to that. So the communication is the last part of it. If you take a 360 view of any organization, brands, which is really the thread that runs, runs throughout it. So brand is more internal, we often say to our clients, than it is external. And that's not in some wanky, you know, kind of way that, you know, we're all going to have come together and have a kumbaya moment. It's really about having a shared sense of purpose. And often clients struggle to find the time internally and, you know, to actually be able to communicate that. I mean, a lot of our work is about building consensus internally. And the reason why, you know, it's so important to have that consensus internally is that it then actually affects everything else that you do. So if you think about that we're aligned internally, we're quite clear on what we stand for in the world, the value that we actually bring, we're able to define that and be able to actually clarify how that's different and you know whether that's through the approach that we take or the opportunity we have or the space that we operate in, the model that our organization may run. It's really about being able to actually kind of go, okay, well, that's different. The reason why I talk about difference so much is that that is what engenders pride in an organization. So if I'm working for somewhere and I can clearly tell someone what we're doing day in and day out is kind of actually taking something that is intangible. And that's partly why it's so hard to explain branding sometimes and making it tangible and making it real. So that when you're in those moments where you have to step into communication, you can do that from a point of confidence. You can actually be able to succinctly, clearly, and articulately be able to say, this is why we do what we do, and this is how it's different. But often it's done the other way around is that communication is trying to cover up a problem or trying to kind of create an image that isn't necessarily coming from a place of authenticity. In the public value space, there's a huge kind of sniff test around the search for authenticity. And I think if you're not authentic, people know it. And I think that's where kind of branding gets often tied in as like, oh, well, we're just going to paper over the cracks. And I don't think that perspective is wrong. I think that perspective is a really healthy one to hold. But if you do see a branding project and it's kind of actually digging into building internal consensus and building a shared sense of mission and purpose, then I think you have to, in your own mind, kind of go, well, this is actually different than brand communication. So to come back to where we started, I think there's a big difference between the process of branding and then brand communication. 
I wonder if that topic of authenticity really hits on something that clearly matters a lot to public value organisations and maybe hits on where some of that discomfort might come from. I think sometimes a branding is associated, like you say, with presenting something inauthentic in a well-packaged way. But I think what you're describing is actually branding being a vehicle to present actually authentically who you are or who you want to be as an organisation and therefore becomes a much more natural expression of what it means to be a public value organisation. Correct, correct. The other part that I think sometimes gets tied up in in brand projects and public value is that it is a tool about, it does have a market orientation to it. So understanding kind of strategic choice and who you're going to help sometimes gets tied up in this as well. And arguably it should each and every time, because really what you're trying to say is that we're most for these people. So if anything, in my consultancy work, that's probably the area because we do a fair bit of commercial work as well as public value work is that I will bring that framework into into certain workshops and you know you will get a bit of pushback on that because it's really the state admission is well we can help everyone because that's what we want to do whereas branding is really about kind of going this is who we are this is how we're different and this is who it matters most to that sense of kind of that it creates a bit of a maybe hierarchy is the wrong word but perhaps the right concept is that you know there is an idea that we're most for this group And then there's others that we could help. And I think that's another thing that great public value organizations really focus on who they're most for and the problems they can best help address. And particularly in a world where we see rising specialism. So public value as a whole, I mean, the sector is going, you know, through a huge rejuvenation, I would say. Out of the pandemic, certainly the government has stepped in more and more into our kind of economic cycle. So you can look at that as kind of, you know, the public stepping back into the sphere of economics. But equally, the way that value gets delivered is changing, whether that's kind of that you've got more models coming in that use data to actually help uncover problems that can be much more specific around you know, the measurement of help or the way that we can actually target the right part of kind of a social change initiative to affect the most change. There's a large amount of change that's actually going through. And I think where that kind of poses challenges for public value organizations, if you're not really clear on who you are, how you're different, then when it gets to that part about kind of where can we make the most difference, it becomes almost, well, we can help everyone, which is a really great and lofty goal. And as a sector, we can definitely do that. But as an individual organization, you really have to pick your specialism these days because it's, you know, we live in a world where to affect the change, you have to be focused on what you can do the best. I also wonder that if there's also a risk for public organizations around branding, particularly when authenticity is so important. If you're creating a brand around solving a large and ill-defined problem, being authentic to that brand becomes extremely difficult, right? Um, it becomes something that you then need to try and live up to, which there's a risk you're actually creating a promise or an expectation on yourself that is very difficult to be authentic to if it's not well-defined. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. And I mean, you see that all the time. I mean, it's, it's interesting. For example, here in Victoria, for example, like our infrastructure program here at the moment in terms of kind of Victoria's big build, I think is, you know, a really, really powerful brand. You're saying to people that you're going to sit longer in traffic. You know, you're going to have to wait, you know, up to an hour sometimes sitting somewhere and you're going to be inconvenienced for a period of 10 years while we actually fix this up. But I think most people you talk to are like, okay, they understand the vision is to actually help Victoria and Melbourne in particular deal with the size that it's actually become. And they've been very clear to your point, Tom, around defining what the problem is that we're actually trying to address together. So rather than seeing it as an individual um, inconvenience, what you see it is actually it's a collective act of sacrifice. That's a really great example of public value brands working well. 
because people broadly understand the concept. Whereas, you know, you'll see, you know, I guess because it's topical, for example, here in um, Australia around our vaccine rollout, which is, you know, it's a communication program, but it's not a brand. It doesn't define really how I need to act into that. And it's also something that kind of isn't actually going to build collective action. It's still very, very individual. There's no sense of, you know, I guess an individual kind of benefit or kind of a collective benefit. It's interesting how you can get something really right because, as you said, your problem statement's really, really clear. Or you can get something really, really wrong because your problem statement is ill-defined. I wonder if there's a temptation in general for your brand to be a very entirely positive story, um, which again, becomes impossible to deliver on. The big build strategy almost has stuck in traffic behind some roadworks built into that brand, which has managed to tell that difficult story in a really positive and bigger positive brand, which is really remarkable in a way, isn't it? To have part of your brand be actually a a cost and, and something that people want to avoid, but it's part of a brand of a higher purpose. I mean, it's such a great point you make, Tom, is that that's what keeps it authentic. This is, I think they've actually kind of, you know, addressed the problem and then put you in it. So they, through their communication, actually have empathy for you. Whereas you contrast that with vaccine, for example, here in Australia, nowhere in that communication do they state the problem, but that's nowhere in that campaign. Whereas you contrast that to what you're saying about the big build, it addresses the fact that it's a 10-year window. It talks about the individual inconvenience but it also promises you the benefit that if you suffer through this, you're going to have quicker commute times into the future. We often think as branding as uh, internal exercise focused on our own organizations. But I think both the examples you just raised, people, citizens, individuals are sort of either a part of that brand or otherwise. They're a shared thing. So, you know, we talk a lot about brand positioning, which is the, it's the internal exercise, who we are, how we're different and, you know, kind of, and where does that actually then kind of translate into the world in terms of the biggest difference that we can make. But in the external world, it's not like, you know, anyone walks around in their head kind of going, oh, their brand positioning is X, Y, Z. It's in the real world. People are living daily lives. And what's the recall that actually comes, comes through? Now, there's a, there's a lot of work that goes into building any clear brand image, but it is an image. So what they hold is what they've either learned through the absence of communication or they've actually, you've helped communicate to them out of your brand positioning what it is that you actually stand for. And of course, you know, things like brand logos, brand colors, brand shapes, brand taglines all make a huge difference in, in that space. I mean, when I was uh, working in Canada, we worked on the workers' compensation board across the country. So with specific provinces, the insight quite clearly was that you work safely at work because of you want to go home safe to your family. Right. So it's what's outside of work is the motivator to actually kind of then allow you to kind of enact those safe changes in the workplace because you want to go home and hug your daughter or you want to go home in the same fashion so you can play footy with your mates. Whatever it is, is that that's the motivator for acting safely at work because at work, it's actually often quicker to take a shortcut. It's painful to work if anyone's ever done this. I have, you know, hang off a roof um, fully hooked into it. It's annoying. You've got to constantly re put yourself in place kind of things like kind of, you know, work safe for life, which is the kind of the campaign that we came up with. And, you know, we actually, that was one of my first interactions with Australia was through that because we actually spoke to the workers' compensation board in Victoria. So kind of work safe here, picked that up and actually started to to work through that. But our, our whole strategy there was about the for life piece and building recall around that. So we used a various different ways to build that. So one was color. So in terms of kind of having this really kind of vibrant kind of yellow that, you know, was a, 
associated with risk at, at work, but yet it was kind of something that always caught your attention. The for life was always in kind of large, bold typography. And then, you know, we went through various different campaigns of um, building kind of people's awareness. Some were shocking, you know, like we had this, like, um, I remember this, we built this, this like fake hand that had been kind of chopped off and kind of, you know, put in, we had like an eyeball popped out. I mean, they won lots of awards. I think they got lots of attention. Probably the more successful part of our work was around communication family moments. So kind of actually, you know, which you'll see mirrored around the world now is kind of showing dad or mom or kind of, you know, other grandparent coming back to their family and to their loved one and that kind of moment of reconnection. So this idea that you connect with safety at work so you can reconnect at home is the right space to kind of build that ongoing recall. So you need a little bit of shock sometimes to kind of get these things off the off the ground, but longer term, which I think is is interesting for public value because it's naturally part of what we do, is that it's actually a positive story. You want to tell a positive story. People it resonates with them. Yes, you can shock them, but you've also got to uplift them. I wonder if that's not a bad segue to just talk about what you think are some of the important things for a public value organization to think about in relation to branding, what makes for a successful brand. We've talked a little bit about authenticity as well as fostering recall. Are there other things that organizations really ought to be, particularly public value organizations, need to be thinking about for what makes a good brand for for their enterprise or their endeavor? The most common mistake is seeing it as a one-off process. Rather than, yes, you get a one-off process quite often to get to a brand positioning, then it's a living thing. If it doesn't act as the North Star of the organization that kind of shows that this is the way or it can't be a decision-making tool, perhaps is the better way to say that, it should be an ongoing decision-making tool. Not saying like, is this on-brand, off-brand, but actually, isn't this us? Like if we are our most authentic selves, how would we act in this moment? Would we make that decision? Would we cut funding to that area? Would we you know, act in this manner? It gives everyone, I think, an, a, an opportunity to input into it because it's alive. Probably you know, the most disappointing work in my career has been when you go through that process, particularly in public value, you walk in and it's a mission statement or it's a vision. You know, We're here to help X do Y. But you quite clearly see around the place that the behaviors haven't changed or that it's kind of, it actually hasn't really helped. It solved a color problem that they might have had or that, you know, they've been able to solve their brand architecture, but they actually haven't been able to solve their brand problem, which was about relevance. So the process typically is, is fine. If you work with, I mean, any good brand expert will be able to help get you somewhere. But really, you know, it's the interplay and it's the chemistry with a client. It's about how you get there. But then if that chemistry doesn't continue out of the engagement, if the senior leadership of the organization doesn't take it as kind of a key part of how they make decisions then often it doesn't live. And you know there'll be three or four years down the road, new leadership will come in and the same problem is there, which is that we actually have to define why we're here together. Whereas I would say if the last leadership group had brought that to life and actually lived it through their decision-making, the next leadership group coming in into the business, whether that's you know four years or 40 years, would be quite clearly picking up a legacy and being able to go, right, this is what we do. And I need to understand that this is how I, a part of my decision-making is this. That decision-making really does put that question of you, whether your brand is authentically who you are or not. I'm thinking of another a famous one that was going around was uh, uh, NAB, the bank, had less give, more take. Uh, well, there you go. My slip of the tongue probably emphasizes what happened with that brand. Is that the kind of process that you're thinking of where where the story you're telling as a brand is demonstrably out of step with what people are seeing, I suppose, in terms of some of your actions. 
Yeah, 100%. And, you know, I, I think things like that, they end publicly, but they started privately inside the four walls of that organization. If brand and Frenab was a you know a core part of really how their executive were making decisions, they never would have ended up there, right? It really was marketing driven, and I think that's where you have to be really careful. And certainly, one of my watchouts as a consultant in that space is if we're solely working with the marketing team, I tend to be quite worried, right? Whether that you know in a public value thing, sometimes it's not necessarily you know it could be the director for strategic communications, it could be kind of public relations. There's multiple different titles that go with it. But if the senior leader in that business, you never meet them in a brand engagement, it's probably not going to work. And the reason why I stress that is because they ultimately have to champion that idea that we lift this, right? And if you're a senior decision maker in a public value organization, well, then sometimes you're going to miss out on a tender. And that ultimately might cost you your job. That's the jeopardy. But I think brands that are living and alive help you make that decision. You're like, well, of course, I couldn't take that because it's just not us. It's not us. And if we lose, we lose. And if I lose my job, I lose my job. But I think that's the type of thing around authenticity that people can really, really see through. Like whether that's mothers against drink driving, whether that's kind of, you know, Rosie Batty here in terms of kind of her work around kind of domestic violence. You know, those stories are all led by people who are 120% invested in ensuring that that cause actually comes comes to fruition. Now, it doesn't have to necessarily have directly personally affected you for you to have that level of passion. But I think to be authentically engaged in the issue, you have to put front and center, is this us? And is this something we actually would go out and, and do? And, you know, to come back to your kind of question on NAV, I mean, it didn't affect anyone. There's no, the reality is their senior leadership took more and more while they gave their customer less and less. And that's the truth of what happened, what happened during that time. And government stepped in through a rural inquiry to try to reset some of those parameters and some of those norms in the banking industry. We're in a obviously a pretty unique time for public value organizations who are still adapting to either the restrictions around us and the flow-on impacts that that's having across all parts of society. Where does branding sort of sit on the priority list, do you think, at the moment for public value organizations? And is it an important thing to be thinking about now and why, I suppose? I think it is. I mean, I think because it partly it's about kind of reimagining where this can all go. I mean, arguably, however we got here, wherever we are, I think, you know, we could have a philosophical debate about that. There is no doubt that really what the context of the pandemic actually sits behind is the digital revolution. The whole work from home thing, you know, I always find kind of really, really interesting is that, you know, through the Spanish flu in 1914, the biggest difference is that they did everything that we've done, but they didn't have technology. They didn't have work from home. And if you look at the infection rates in terms of people who actually had to go to work, had to interact with the public, it's not dissimilar to what it was with the, with the Spanish flu or influenza. The important part to focus on that is that we're now living in a more of a human created world in terms of kind of digital But this idea that we used to be part of nature and now we are a part from it. So that we've kind of created our our own world. And I think, you know, this idea that you can reimagine into the future now, it's a new context, perhaps, because I think it's become more broadly accepted. It's not just an elite thing. Yes, I understand there's a lot of exclusion and inequality that goes around technology, but broadly, it's an enabler for many, if not most now. And that's the world that we're stepping into. So brand can help you understand that. So, you know, even simple things like, do you want people to come back to the office to actually work together again? Is that important to you? Do you accept that kind of part of your culture now is about how you engender trust with with everyone because you're not going to be able to sit on their shoulder and see what they're what they're doing? It's just a simple example. Well, brand can also help with that. 
do you accept that your audience or your constituency you're trying to serve has been through a period of trauma that they're now trying to actually adapt to, or you might have more money than you ever knew what to do with, but you've, you've still got pressure to deliver. So brand can also help you with that. And it comes back to where we started is that it helps you be clear on the only thing you can control, which is who are you? Who are you in this world? And what is it that you're actually trying to affect change about? I wonder if the other element too about this uh, pandemic has just been an unending number of decisions that need making, you know, organizations needing to transform overnight, needing to reorientate from X to Y. You mentioned earlier that a good brand is one that is used to make decisions. I wonder if in this this environment where there is just so many strategic decisions being made all the time, more than anything, the basis for those decisions needs to be clear. And that and that's a conversation about brand. I would agree with that. And I think it's often, you know, in a kind of world that is, you know, is messy and undefined. And the pandemic's a great example of that. There are a series of judgment calls that are informed by data points, et cetera. But ultimately, whether that's an individual leader making the call or that they need to build consensus is that there's a whole bunch of information that comes to you. But if you're clear on who you believe you as a group are, it makes all of that, it's the primary filter. It allows you to kind of take all of those things through and be like, okay, well, we're going to act in this way. It is the primary filter, I would argue, in a time of crisis because ultimately, you know, our leadership, our departments, you know, kind of anyone who's actually been on, in air quotes, the front lines of this crisis, I think those who have succeeded have a really, really strong sense of self. Their organizations who have succeeded equally have that same thing, right? They're able to stand up and be like, okay, we might not have made the right decision, but this is the decision we're making based on our values. And, you know, 100% brand helps you be clear on that. It's about kind of you as a group, this is what you believe in. And this is how you're, how you're going to act. And this is how you're going to treat people. And I think it gives you that as a start point to ask those types of questions. Because I mean, everyone has been posed, posed challenges throughout this. How are you going to deal with people needing to work remotely? Can you keep all your people? If you're going to keep all your people, are you going to take government support? Aren't you? If you've needed to take government support and then you've done really well, what do you do with the money? And, you know, and I think you've seen that play out all across this pandemic in different areas, but ultimately it's a reflection of you know, the brand of place that they're in. You also mentioned earlier the role of brand in terms of differentiating. Is it getting increasingly difficult for public, meaning either public sector or not-for-profit organizations to differentiate themselves in terms of their purpose? And, and how does that play into this conversation? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, I think for the sector, it's largely, a, it's, it's an own goal. Um, it's about actually kind of giving away the language and giving away the high ground to, around this. I mean, yes, you know, if I'm running Patagonia, of course, you know, I've, I'm trying to do the right thing environmentally. I'm trying to create a better world, but I'm also trying to sell fleece jackets, right? I'm also trying to kind of make sure that you buy my tent. I have a profit motive that's actually um, built into it. Whereas really when you think about a not-for-profit model is that, or a cooperative or kind of you know, the public service is that all of those things are... They take you to a different place. You know, I've seen the language change over the last 10 to 15 years. And you know, it's always struck me that why are we not just saying that we're, kind of, we're not-for-profit, right? We literally do everything we possibly can to bring in you know, revenue funds however we can to serve this goal. I guess, for-profit entities have co-opted the language. And that's fine. I mean, a lot, there's a lot of really, really good intention that goes with that in terms of actually coming under, underneath it all. But the language that used to exist in kind of the public value sphere has been given away by the public value sphere itself. And you know, so I always encourage a kind of return to, to roots and actually being proud of what we are and the fact that kind of, you know, we don't have a profit motive, like 
zero. So we just want to really be able to serve as many people you know, as we can within our expertise. I wonder if we could pivot the conversation a little bit and talk a bit more personally about the contenders and yourselves during this period. You're a creative organization. You're a collaborative organization. You're obviously essential to your business is working with people. How have you guys found distance working? Uh, how have you managed to adapt to the new world, but also maintain your organization and, and your strength and how you function? I mean, the, the group is really, really clear on kind of what we're, what we're here to do. You know, kind of we, we really try to build brands that can help enact that change in a world that is changing rapidly. We're clear that that involves strategists and involves people who kind of help build the client relationship and it involves designers or in air quotes, creatives, whether that's writers, web designers, et cetera. So I think having that helped us. And then also we try, you know, we have really kind of clear values internally around kind of having a point of view, um, working collaboratively. We really use that off the start to help us guide our first decisions. And, you know, I think the first wake up call for us was like, we're really connected group, but yet our kind of technology tools really needed to change in in a hurry. So, you know, we were, we were the classic email, call, kind of all that sort of stuff. Whereas, you know, within two weeks, we were kind of, you know, I've never used Zoom so much in my life um, during those first two weeks and kind of Slack kind of went from something I was like, oh, yeah, maybe to something that kind of became really integral in internally. And so that was one thing is kind of getting our technical toolbox in in order. The second thing was then kind of, it was about cultural amplification. So I'm incredibly fortunate to be supported by a really great management team who really focused on the people. It was an existential crisis. Like we were sitting there going, oh, we might not have work in two months. Oh, right. If that all goes south, then this is really, really trouble. So you kind of have, you have a stress-based response to that where you're just like, oh, okay, I've got to kind of um, calm myself down here to actually kind of get back to kind of, you know, key things. And having clarity on kind of what we are and kind of having a great group really helped. But quite quickly that the cultural amplification became not about just being work colleagues, but actually kind of get through this colleagues, if that makes sense. So we would all pitch in together. Like we had things like trivia nights, virtual drinks, kind of, you know, sending people gifts, trying to pick people up, daily kickoff meetings, just a bit of banter, a bit of fun throughout the kind of thing to try to kind of alleviate it, giving people space to help, you know, school their children at home changing expectations. But, you know, this kind of this get through it together culture really, really helped. And I think talking about it like that really, really helped. And, you know, just being really authentic about the challenge that it actually faced to us. And we did actually manage to, to come through it. And it, it was then weird because the first two months were like, oh, this nothing's actually changing other than we're working from from one spot. And then we also got incredibly busy. So we also then had to deal with how we extended that ecosystem to not just involve kind of our full-time staff, but other people that were around us. And I think because we had the technology tools and, you know, one of my favorite things about how the team responded to it was that they brought others into it, you know? So I think it was an incredibly isolating time for people, particularly people who are, you know, single or by themselves or, you know, might have kind of some other, other issue, but, you know, the team just brought everyone in. You know, whether they were in Sydney, whether they're kind of working with us, you know, in Queensland, they would still come to our trivia. They would still kind of be there and kick off. It was an, it was an open thing. And probably when I look back on it, that's, uh, you know, will be my lasting memory, I think, of this time was that, yeah, it's quite clearly possible to respond humanely to something like this. But then really, it only comes about because people had a shared sense of this. We're going to get through this together. And, you know, I've really enjoyed being a part of that. My guest today has been Joe Rogers from The Contenders. Joe, thanks so much for being a part of this conversation. Thanks so much, Tom. It's been a pleasure. 